but in Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at uh, a very interesting account about Jesus remaining behind in Jerusalem after visiting there with his parents. And it's one of those texts that um, I I think it's very easy to get a mental picture of what's happening. I'm sure uh, if you grew up in church, you've seen pictures of this and kind of what it was like. But it's also one of those passages where it's very easy to to feel some of the emotions that they might have felt when Jesus went missing. Uh, And as I was praying about um, this week about what to to speak about, the Lord really impressed this text very quickly on my heart. And it it not only really applies to the child dedication we did this morning, but there's a lot of great um, application and relevance for our daily lives. Kind of on the surface, maybe it doesn't seem like that, but... Um, as we finish the study this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit will give us some, some very simple but, but practical spiritual truths for our lives that we really need to respond to with, with great urgency and great zeal and great determination. So let's take the text, chapter 2 of the book of Luke, and we're going to start in verse 41 and read down uh, to verse 52. So Luke 2, thank you for bringing your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, remember there are always some available at the Welcome Center, and uh, you can take those as our gift, okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year, speaking of Jesus, at the feast of the Passover. When he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And they went a day's journey and began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, going to Jerusalem at this point in his life, was very significant for Jesus for a couple reasons. The first one we see in the first verse that we read, because it was the Feast of Passover. This was the yearly commemoration of remembrance of the time when God delivered Israel out of Egypt. You remember that story, hopefully you know that, when they were in bondage for so many years, and they cried out finally to the Lord, and God immediately acted and sent Moses to deliver them. And that was through a very specific way. He didn't just take them out. He sent plagues. And then the last plague was that he said, I'm going to kill the firstborn of every house unless you put the blood of a spotless lamb on the wooden doorposts of your house. If my angel comes and sees that blood on the doorposts, he will pass over you and he will not kill the firstborn. Now, there are obvious parallels between the Passover and what Christ came to do. Came to be the sacrificial lamb, the spotless, sinless, sacrificial lamb 
whose blood was put on the wood of the cross and whose death and resurrection provides for us to not be punished forever, but to be delivered, to be saved and freed from the slavery of sin that held us captive as descendants of the firstborn, Adam. That's a long sentence. You got it, right? We were descendants of Adam. Adam was the author, not the author, but he was the one who brought sin into the world. We are descendants of him. We're, the, we're descendants of the firstborn, but the firstborn was under sin. So Jesus becomes the second Adam. He comes, becomes the sacrificial spotless lamb who dies, has his blood shed, put on the cross, and now he intercedes and frees us from bondage. So it was not accidental. There's nothing coincidental when the Holy Spirit tells us his parents came up at the feast of Passover. This is a direct connection between the Passover and Jesus. That's first significance. The second significance is that Jerusalem was the center of everything to God. It was the city of God. It was the place where Abraham had gone to sacrifice Isaac. It was the capital of Israel, and it was where the temple had been built by Solomon. Not only did it have a past history, but it had a future history. In the future, it would be the place where Jesus would come back, and he would suffer, and he would be put on the cross. It would be the place where he would defeat sin and death and rise again. It would be the place where he would ascend back into heaven. It would be the place where the church would start. It would be the center of all conflict between Israel and her enemies, even to today. And it would be the city where he will return and set up his kingdom. So Jerusalem was everything. So Jesus comes at 12. He comes during the Passover, knowing that he's going to be the Passover lamb in 21 years. He comes to this place that's the city of God, where God will set up his kingdom, where everything important in the history of mankind will take place in that little city. Now it says in the text, if you look back at it, that Mary and Joseph came every year. So we don't know if this is Jesus' first time coming with them or whether he had been there before. But I thought about it this week. What, whether it was first time or 20th time, how did he feel being there? What did that city stir in him? Remember, when he comes in in the triumphal entry, he weeps over Jerusalem. So what did that city stir in him when he came over the bend from Bethany and there was the city, and I hope and pray someday we'll all get to go to, to Jerusalem. I've been there four times. It will change your life. You come over the little hill from Bethany, which is a tiny little town, and you come over the Mount of Olives, and there it is laid out all before you. What did that stir in him? Knowing how significant it was. Knowing that Jerusalem had always been special to God. It had to be at one point sobering and another point bittersweet because it would be the place of great pain and agony. But listen, it would also be the place of great joy for you and me. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. That's a specific detail. He's not yet a man in the sight of the law. 18 years from now, his ministry will begin. 21 years from now, he'll go to the cross. But even at this age, even at 12, his purpose is undeniably clear. And that's revealed in what happens here. 
They come and they celebrate the Passover. Now look at what it says. It says that Joseph and Mary and everyone who was with them heads for home. But there's one thing. Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. There is absolutely nothing accidental about this. This was an intentional and deeply purposeful action. But let's be very clear. He was not being deceptive. He was not being rebellious. He was not being disobedient to them because that would have been sin. He just didn't inform them he was staying. Now, if he had asked, hey, guys, I know you're going back to Nazareth. I'm 12. Can I stay here by myself for a while? What do you think they would have said? Um, no. Hold on, let us think about it. No. So he didn't ask. Because if he had asked and they had said no and he had stayed, he would have rebelled. Rebellion is sin. Jesus didn't sin. So he doesn't ask them. He's not doing anything wrong because they haven't said you can't stay. And then the reason that he stays is, is deeply profound because he has a greater purpose and a greater priority that supersedes everything else. That greater purpose and that greater priority was to be in the house of the Lord teaching people the word of God. So the text says, look at it in verse 46, that he was sitting in the middle of the teachers. Now he's not where the priests are because the priests are doing their thing and making sacrifices. He's with the rabbis. Now the rabbis had memorized the Torah. They knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. They studied day and night. The scripture. They knew the words of the prophets. They knew Israel's history. They explained it all to the people, most of whom could not read and certainly didn't have their own copies of the Old Testament. Aren't you glad you get to hold a Bible this morning? People in Jesus' time didn't have this. The Old Testament was on big scrolls, and the rabbis would bring it out and they'd teach what the law says and they would explain it to the people. They didn't have a copy of the word. So so Jesus goes at 12, think about this, we just dedicated a couple of 11-year-olds, Jesus goes at 12, and, and he goes right into where the rabbis are, and he sits down, and he listens and talks. Now, he doesn't fit any of the social or, or religious protocols at this point. There would have been an expectation that, of course, if a 12-year-old's going to come into the temple, that his parents would be with him, and, and, and people would assume that he's not capable of learning anything from a seasoned rabbi. But again, he's not being disobedient. It's just that every convention would have said, you don't belong here. You're out of your league. But after at least three days, he not only hasn't been kicked out. Think about this. He not only hasn't been kicked out, he's impressing the rabbis with the depth of his knowledge and his insight. Look at verse 47. It says, all, Spirit uses that word intentionally, all who heard him, all of them were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I tried to picture what this would have been like when Jesus first walked in there, 12-year-old boy coming in there. All the rabbis are sitting around with great wisdom in their robes and copies of the Torah in front of them, speaking with great uh, gravity and great sincerity. And, and, and here comes this 12-year-old. And he starts to ask questions. Come on, there had to be a little, all right, let's grill this little whippersnapper, right? 
this impertinent little boy who's walking in here. All right, let, let, let's show him what it is. So I'm sure at the outset, they were kind of like derisively saying, you want some questions? You want some answers, little boy? We'll give you some answers. And then all of a sudden, imagine their surprise when he not only understands everything, but he starts to ask them questions they can't handle. And the truth that he's speaking is deeper than anything they understand. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because he is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. He has all wisdom, all understanding, all logic. Even as a boy, he had an answer and an explanation for everything. Listen, if you're living in uncertainty this morning and you're looking for some strength and from some truth, it's right here in your hands. It's the Word of God. If you don't have a copy, take one today. Study to show yourself approved unto God. Why? Because this book contains truth. And Jesus, John 1 says, is the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus comes as the Word, the living Word of God, and He comes and sits in their presence, and they're trying to act all big shot and all authority, and we know everything, and you're just a little boy. And then He opens His mouth, and people are dumbfounded. The Word of God will impact our hearts like that if we allow it to. If we take the time to study it and take it into our hearts and take notes and ask questions and really allow the Spirit to say, here's what my Word says, it will literally change you. That's why, look back at the text, it says when they heard him, they were amazed. The word means to be astonished and thrown off guard. In other words, they are back on their heels intellectually and spiritually by Jesus. And very important to notice, he doesn't do this arrogantly or condescendingly. He's not a little brat who's like, I know more than you. It says that he listened. Look at this. He listened and he asked questions. How many know that's the best way to learn? You're sitting at a table with a bunch of people and nobody's talking because people don't ask questions. They just want to be asked. So it's a little thing I do sometimes when I'm sitting and there's not a lot of conversation. I start asking people questions because that's the only way I'm going to learn about things. And people love to talk. So you ask a question, you're going to fill some space. You can go and eat your, eat your chicken. You know, I'll finish my meal. Just ask some questions. So Jesus sits in them and he asks questions. You know, in this day and age where there is so much information, how many feel overloaded by the information this morning? I, I can't do any more. The average attention span, scientists say, who knows if they're right, but it's got to be close. The average attention span is five seconds. In other words, while I was saying the average attention span is five seconds, you were already thinking about something else. Now you're four thoughts down the road because I've been talking for 20 seconds. Like, what was he saying? What was that? So the average attention span is five seconds. So we have to develop now an internal discipline to intentionally listen intently and, and to ask questions to learn more. That's why when you study the Word of God, we have to study it. Don't just read it. Well, Jesus went to the temple with his parents. He stayed behind. Okay, I knocked out my 20 minutes for today. Nope. Sometimes you can get two hours of study out of one verse. 
Well, pastor, how can he do that? Just start asking questions. Look at the background. Look at the context. See what's being said. Why does the Holy Spirit use that word? I'm going to research that word. Find out what it means. If we will take time with the word of God, the Holy Spirit will teach us. But we have to move past. Click, 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 click. I'm tired of that website. I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to that. Oh, the commercial's on. I'm going to fast forward through that. I never watch TV live now because I don't want to watch commercials. My attention's from, well, I don't want to watch commercials about whatever. We're fast, 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 fast. So, so to say we need to sit down and study the word of God, you're going, come on, you don't know my life. Yeah, I do. I have the same life. Study to show yourself approved. Don't just read. Study. Now, Jesus uses this method. Look back at what it says. In, in, by, and, and this is important that he listens and asks questions. Because at that point in Jewish history, many of the rabbis were teaching a distorted version of the Old Testament law. They had adapted the law based on their personal bias. And that led to new laws and new practices that weren't in the original text. So by listening and asking questions, Jesus is taking in what they're teaching and also hearing this kind of twisted theology that, that they are teaching the people. And that gives him information. It gives him justification for his ministry because in 18 years, he's going to come back and he's going to say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. What you're teaching is not what my father said. What you are teaching is, is distracting from the truth of the word. And you are whitewashed sepulchers. You're false teachers. You're snakes and you're hypocrites and you're leading the people wrong. What an important spiritual principle for us. It is essential that we know what we believe. How do you know what you believe? It's right here. If it's not here, don't believe it. Have a justification and a background for everything you believe. I've said before, I'll say it again. On the website is the doctrinal statement of this church. What a good place to start. The doctrine of God. The doctrine of Jesus. The doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of justification. Just, just go on. There are 15 verses for each one. Go on and start studying those. Know what you believe. Why is that important? Because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what your favorite pastor online says. It doesn't matter the latest book you read. Because if it doesn't be supported by the word of God, it's worthless rubbish. If what I preach on Sunday isn't supported by the word, if I'm teaching extracurricular stuff that I personally like or I think is going to make you feel good and it's not in the word of God, you better confront me. You better say, that's not right, pastor. That's not in the word of God. And we'll sit down together and if I'm wrong, I'll apologize to you. Everything is based on the word of God. And we have to be able to understand it and discern it because the devil twists scripture and he uses, even in churches, a, a, a distortion of the truth. So the word becomes about us and not about Jesus. And Jesus knew that this was going on. He knew the truth was corrupted. So he gives them the opportunity to be right. And he asks them questions. And he listens. That's a responsibility you and I have as the truth continues to be made more subjective. And as people continue to de-emphasize the word of God. You and I need to be Bereans, studying the Word of God every day and walking by the Word of God and believing what the Word of God says. If we don't have that, close the doors, turn off the lights. That's what it has to be based on. Now, 
Here's what happens next. Let's get through this because my time's running short. What's interesting is that while this is happening, Joseph and Mary, it says it right here. What verse is it? It says it in verse, somebody help me, verse 43. It says they're unaware. Now, that was likely due to the large contingent of family and friends that had come with them. But there's still kind of an, an, an inference of inattention that they didn't know where their 12-year-old boy was. And by the way, this 12-year-old boy is the son of God. But, but somehow, he got lost in the shuffle. And the text says that they kind of assumed that he was with them, but he wasn't. Again, he's not being resistant or rebellious. He just didn't come along. He didn't hop on the caravan. So they get a day's journey down the road. That's about 20 to 25 miles. So a quarter of the way home to Nazareth, 20 miles, all of a sudden they discover, wait a second, where's Jesus? Anybody have Jesus? Is Jesus with you? Aunt, Aunt Betty, is Jesus with you? Uncle, Uncle Claude, is he with you? He's not with you? Where is Jesus? And they go, start to, to frantically, I don't think there was an Uncle Claude, but go with me. They, they, start, to, they start to go around the, the whole contingent of people, and Jesus isn't there. They're 20 to 25 miles away. Now, parents, think about what would be going through your mind at this point. How would you feel? The overwhelming sense of panic and worry and maybe moments of blaming yourself and maybe moments of blaming your spouse. And there had to be fear that he wasn't safe in such an international city. And where was he staying and what was he eating and how was he getting by and he didn't have any money and Joseph, he's just a child. Mary, he'll be fine. He's just a child, but he's the son of God. Yeah, but he's 12. Think about the conversation. Even at 12, even knowing that he was the son of God, they had to be scared. So imagine the trip back. Now, try to get it in the text now. Get the, get the visceral experience. Get the emotion of it at this point. There's no way to communicate to anybody back in Jerusalem. It's so hard to fathom that, right? Because we've all got our cell phones. Text, 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 send, 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 call, call, call. We, we, we have everything. We can get in touch with anybody anytime if they'll answer. They have nothing. No cell phone, no internet, no text, no email. No way to get word back. No way to catch a plane and fly back. No way to get in car and drive back. They can't even call the police and say, will you be on the lookout for our son? Add to the fact that they don't know that he has intentionally stayed. In fact, even when they find him, you see it in verse 46, even when they find him and he explains it, they're still confused. So at best, they're arguing to themselves, well, he just got left behind. At worst, they're arguing to, him, to themselves, somebody took him. And this is no ordinary boy. Not only is there a deeply personal component to this problem, but there's an even deeper spiritual implication. They know he's the son of God and he's the savior and that even as a baby, the king of Israel had tried to kill him. They knew scripture, so they know the enemy hates his guts and that he'll be plotting to kill him and stop him from being the Messiah. And they know Jerusalem is a very cosmopolitan city with plenty of evil people with evil intentions who could harm him in some way. So every thought is flooding into their minds as they go back 25 long, dry, parched, panicked miles 
taking 10 to 12 hours at best as they're trying to walk through the sand and through the roads, not knowing, fearing the worst, wondering where he was. How would you feel? And if that wasn't bad enough, when they get back, it takes another three days to find him. Talk about feeling helpless. Jerusalem's not New York City. It's still, to this day, fairly small, so it doesn't seem like it would take that long to find a lost 12-year-old, and with each passing hour, we have to believe that their fear and their anxiety accelerated more and more and more. Now they've gone five days, think about this, five days without knowing where he is. One day's journey out, one day's journey back, and three days running around town. They've looked everywhere. The problem is they were looking in the wrong place. They didn't look in the temple. Now, if your child was missing for five days, you probably wouldn't come knock on the door and say, is my kid here? Most children wouldn't run to the church, but Jesus never left. Now they finally get to the temple. Look at verse 48. They both have a very interesting response when they find him. They take it personally. It's your fault. I love this, how we do this, right? It's your fault. I'm sorry, aren't you my parents? <laughs> no, Jesus didn't say that. How could you be, this is such a, such a merry response, how could you be so considerate of us? Didn't you know we were desperately searching for you? They're, they're, kind, of, they're kind of ticked off at him for treating them that way. What a, what a parent response. What was he going to do, run out into the desert by himself? Would that be better? I can't call you on your cell because we don't have cell phones. Think about the responses Jesus could have given if he wasn't pure and spotless. But look at what he says. And it had to be a little painful because he gently says, you are misguided in worrying about me. Apparently, you still don't understand my purpose in being here. In fact, he says, why were you looking for me? And, and to anybody else, that would seem a little snarky and condescending, but that's not the case. Jesus says, listen, you don't need to worry. You need to understand my greater priority was to be in my father's house. In fact, why didn't you know I was here? And it would be hard for them to have a comeback, right? Because they had been there three days and never once looked in the temple. But he hadn't stayed there because it was the safest place in town. He says, and this is so important, verse 49, he says, did you not know that I, tell me the next word, had to be in my father's house? It's a very interesting word in the Greek. It means necessity. It's the verb that is also used in reference to what Jesus would do later. He had to suffer he had to go to the cross. He had to defeat sin and death and to rise again. In other words, this was not just the calculated choice of a 12-year-old to be safe. It was the compelled choice of conviction. It was the necessity of his heart and his ministry to be in his father's house and to teach truth. And this is where I believe as we close that the Holy Spirit wants to really impress on us some very fundamental truths. In fact, don't be put off by the fact that these are so simple. 
and that you've heard them before because I really believe the Spirit's led us this passage this morning to, to tell us that there have to be some priorities in our life that maybe aren't a full priority right now. So I'm going to give you three. Number one, there must, there must be a priority on being in the Lord's presence. There must be a priority on being in the Lord's presence. Even at 12, Jesus is showing us the importance of being near the Father, abiding in his presence in order to have power to do his will and his work. Now, obviously, Jesus was not deficient in any of that, but his example shows us that we will be deficient, especially in terms of wisdom and strength and resolve, if we neglect the presence of God. All these parents that stood up here this morning, if they neglect the presence of God, if they do not make it a priority to live in the presence of God and to seek Him and to call on Him and to ask Him for wisdom, I will tell you right now, no matter how much we support them, they will be negligent. They will be deficient. They will not have enough strength and not have enough power and not have enough wisdom. Now we have the priority and the, and the opportunity each week to meet and gather and call on the name of the Lord. But this Thursday, we have the privilege of getting together and intentionally focusing on listening to the Lord, calling on His name, and being strengthened by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, it should be the service that's most packed. We shouldn't have to say, please come to prayer. Please, we hope you'll, we hope you'll be here. There should be a line out the door before it even happens because we get to come and be in the presence of the Lord. And what will help us is if we will purposely evaluate what we're doing each day and saying, is this necessary? Is this beneficial for my spiritual growth and for closeness to the Lord and to do His work? And when we evaluate our lives every day, the 24 hours you'll have tomorrow, is this beneficial to the Lord's work? Is this beneficial to get me closer to the Lord? As we start to evaluate that, we'll see the places where we need to be hungry for the Lord's presence. So priority one, being in the Lord's presence. Priority two, there has to be a priority to consistently set and teach a standard of loving the Lord. There has to be a priority to consistently set and teach a standard of loving the Lord. As we saw this morning, parenting is an obvious choice an obvious area in where we can do that. And it is unbelievably exciting, and it is a deeply sobering responsibility to raise kids, to train them in the way that they should go. But listen, that teaching and that influence will not only be insincere, but it will actually be counterproductive if they don't see in us a deep love for the Lord. If they don't see in us a strong trust in the Lord, if they don't see in us a complete obedience to the Lord, if they don't see in us a dedication to serve the Lord every day, if they don't see that as our complete priority and purpose, they're going to hear our words and they're going to say, you are not living that. And our toughest critics will be our kids because they know us best. 
if they see duplicity, if they see inconsistency, if there's a lack of integrity between what we're saying and how we're living, what we expect them to do, but we're not going to do it ourselves, the words we say to them, but then we turn around and say something else, that's not going to help them. It's actually going to damage them. And listen, our kids are fighting a hard enough battle, right? What our kids are facing is, is so light years, light years more difficult than what I grew up with. Thousand times harder. And they're trying to make their way and they're trying to know about the Lord and serve the Lord and walk with the Lord when their friends are cursing God and turning on them and trying to influence them. And if they're not seeing at home strength and a rock that, that will support them, if they're seeing duplicity, they're going to say, why would I do that? So we've got to influence our kids for Christ. As a church, they're looking at you. They're watching you. They're hearing what you say. They're seeing your social media posts. They know. And they see that person at church holding their Bible, acting spiritual, and then they see online that person's not acting spiritual at all. What are they to think? It's not just their parents. It's us. We just said it. We're the body. We pledged before the Lord. Yes, Paul, we're going to support them. We're going to nurture them. We're going to teach them. Well, you know what? We better be living that because they're going to ignore us. Third, and I'm done, it must be a priority to live as children in subjection to our Father. There must be a priority to live as children in subjection to our Father. Notice one more thing before we pray. Look at verse 51, because this is not a coincidental detail. It says, Jesus went back and continued to be in subjection to Joseph and Mary. Now, think about what they're thinking at this point. Jesus disappeared for five days. They find him in the temple teaching the rabbis, and the rabbis are blown away by his intellect and by his knowledge. On the way back, don't you think that Mary and Joseph in those 90 miles had a little discussion and said, you know what, we, we've kind of misunderstood. He has much greater loyalties, and he has a much greater calling and a much greater priority than us. This, this child transcends us, so it will be understandable if, if he places that over us. But Jesus, notice verse 51, he still goes back, and he's faithful. As a 12-year-old, he's in subjection to them. Now, if Jesus took that posture with his earthly parents, who knew far less than him, and who made mistakes he never will make, and didn't really understand, even at this point, why he stayed in Jerusalem, listen now, then how much more do you and I need to be surrendered and faithful to the Lord? Think about how the Bible describes us. We're the sheep of his pasture. We're the children of God. We're his servants and his disciples. Now, all of those words carry an incredible privilege that we get to know God and trust God and be adopted by God and accepted by him and saved forever. That's an incredible privilege. But listen, also in those words, there is a clear connotation of subjection. May we never be arrogant before the Lord and say, look at me. Remember the publican and the Pharisee? The Pharisee stands, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. Oh, I'm so glad I've kept your law. I've been wonderful. Walk around. Everybody knows me. Whew, I am the 
publican won't even look up and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the posture we need. Never, oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm doing it. I'm a Christian, strong. Just, God, every day, I'm so grateful that you've saved me. Humble me again. I'm not worthy of you, but praise your name. I'm adopted as your child, but Lord, I'm your servant. Remember the prodigal? He doesn't come back saying, hey, I'm your son. Accept me. He says, just, just, let, me be, just let me work as a servant, Dad. I'm so sorry. And the father puts the robe on him and says, nope, you're my son. That's you and me. Lord, every day, thank you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your grace. Lord, don't ever let me get arrogant or entitled or careless. I just want to be grateful to you. I just want to abide in your presence. I just want to serve you well. Lord, I want to get in your presence. I want to do your will. I want to do your work. That's the heart behind this. That's what Jesus models for us. Close your eyes just for a minute. Just, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I know it's late. What is your purpose this morning? What's your priority? Is it, oh, Lord, I just want to do your will. I just, I just want to do the Lord's work. I just want to, just want to serve the Lord well. I'm not worthy of Christ. I'm not worthy of salvation. God's grace is so amazing. How can somebody like me be saved? But, Lord, you're gracious and you're merciful. Maybe it's just being humble before the Lord. Maybe, maybe we just need more surrender. Maybe there's been a duplicity that needs some correction and you've allowed it for too long. And maybe those words stung a little bit earlier, but that's the Holy Spirit's conviction. That's not me trying to trap you. That's, that's the Spirit speaking to you. Whatever it is, do we have the mind of Christ? The Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, if we're going to have the mind of Christ, then we got to go back to Luke 2 and see him when he was 12. Because he said, I don't want to go back to that nonsense in Nazareth. I want to be in my father's house. I want to do the will of my father. If Jesus is saying that, how much more do I need to say it? So I want to encourage you and challenge you right now. Lord's challenging me too. What do you need to surrender to him this morning? What do you need to lay before him and say, Lord, I've held on to this way too long. There's no way I can justify and defend this as doing your work. Maybe it's a neglect of his presence. Whatever it is. Don't walk out of here this morning holding on to it. Lay it down at his feet right now. Ask him to cleanse you, to change your priorities, to change and transform and renew your mind, to change your desires so that's not, that's not what I am anymore. Lord, the old man, I don't want any of that in my life. I want the new man. And if you've never trusted Christ, if you don't, if you don't even know what that means because you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to do that right now. 
Jesus died for your sins. He took your sins to the cross to put them to death so you can be delivered forever. And if you trust him and bring those sins to him and confess them and turn from them, he will save you. And we can explain that to you. We can help you with that. So I'll be up here. Others will be up here at the end of the service if you want to come talk to us about that. But, but don't leave today. Don't leave today without getting your heart right with the Lord. Believer, right now, right now, are we doing the work of the Father? Are we doing the will of the Father?